Hello everyone and welcome to my weekly digital talk. Today I have invited two distinguished guests, uh, but you see right now only one of them as we were trying to establish a connection with my other guest. Maybe we will manage to get him on the phone. Um, welcome to Dr. Mitchell Belfer. He is a president and director of research of the Eurogolf Information Center. He is senior lecturer at the Metropolitan University in Prague, Czech Republic. And he is also chief editor of the Central European Journal for International and Security Studies. Uh, Valina, he I'm is, here if you can. By hear the me. way, yes. Hello. Hello, Mikhail. We were just about to, uh, to introduce uh, the, the, our guest. So I think that we lost him once again. We will just keep going and if manages to enter uh, the digital talk, uh, it will be great. Elena, can you hear you me? To... I'm here. Yes, we hear you. Okay. We hear you, yes. Okay. So, Professor Michael Tanhum is on the line, on the phone line. Unfortunately, we could not establish a uh, uh, connection with him uh, because of, uh, you know, uh, internet. And uh, as you can see, all of us are in this dire situation of trying to somehow, somehow go online. Professor Michael Tanhum is Senior Associate Fellow at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy in Vienna. And he teaches in the International Relations Program of the University of Navarra, Pamplona, Spain. He holds a PhD from Harvard University and was a fellow at Harvard's Olin Institute for Strategic Studies. He's also a non-resident affiliated scholar at the Center for Strategic Studies at Bashkent University, Ankara in Turkey. So, um, Today's topic of my weekly digital talk is uh, the COVID-19 and the Middle East. Obviously, the pandemic, uh, the falling oil prices uh, and the dire economic situation are having a major um, impact on uh, the MENA region, on the Middle East and North African region. So mo for most of the countries in this region, especially the ones which are fragile and conflict-ridden, such as Iraq or Syria, Yemen, Libya. The pandemic is a massive short-term impact uh, challenge that is aggravating existential structural weaknesses and is accelerating potential tensions and conflict lines, but might also trigger further cleavages and crises in the mid and long term. And all of this is going to be part of our talk in the next 16 minutes. Um, so I'm going to start right w immediately with the first question, which is related to Iran. So tensions resulting from the Trump administration's so-called maximum pressure, uh, coupled with uh, Tehran's maximum resistance response of escalating uh, in the region and ramping up, uh, so has been actually escalating in the region and has been also ramping up its nuclear program. So these two programs, these two approaches led to um, almost three times full-fledged conflicts in the past year, right? With the last one in January. And um, against this background, I would like to ask you, how do you see um, Iran's positioning in the region once the COVID-19 crisis is over? We know that Iran was hard, hardly hit by the virus outbreak. And I would also like to ask you, how do you see the Iran-US relations, but also Iran-Europe relations in this context in the post-COVID? 19 um, uh, context. So, Mitch, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. You can hear me okay, right? Yes. Okay, good. 
Um, it's, it's first, thank you so much for having me uh, as your guest today. Uh, I look forward to our dialogue. I look forward to dialoguing with Mikhail and with our audience, of course. Um, just to fast forward a little bit into the Iran story, I, I think it's, um, from my point of view, it's good to talk about um, a kind of sub-state geopolitics because uh, very often people think of Iran as a, as a regular country following a regular uh, set of uh, strategies, but actually I would like perhaps to draw attention to the fact that Iran has built itself as an asymmetric military power in the sense that it prioritizes the use of proxy groups, the use of uh, insurgencies, terrorism, uh, as a way of leveling the per proverbial battlefield. Um, and in that sense, it's very comfortable with using this kind of clandestine networks uh, in pursuit of its, of its goals. Um, you rightly said that uh, over the past 18 months, we've come very close into a collision course with Iran. Um, made much worse in January, where we were as close as possible uh, to an armed conflict between the United States and Iran. Uh, after the targeted assassination of Soleimani, um, you know, the Al-Quds uh, commander uh, who was assassinated in Iraq. Um, all this, you know, comes together now with the COVID crisis because Iran, and I think some very fundamental questions are going to have to be asked uh, about the nature of uh, Iran's regime, um, how they viewed the COVID crisis from the beginning, and what are we going to do about it? Because essentially what Iran has done, and uh, for those who haven't seen it, I invite you to look at the BBC investigative reportage um, that was just released last night into the Mahan uh, Iran Airlines. Uh, and the use of that airlines to essentially spread the COVID virus throughout the region. Um, this was a deliberate action by, by the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. But I mean, for Iran observers, you know that this is not something that's special. This is, you know, something, of course, that they would exploit. And, you know, because they're exploiting the kind of regional and international turbulence to try to better their position. Um, basically, the way that Iran is um, positioning itself for a post-coronavirus world is the same way it was positioning itself for a, a coronavirus world or a pre-coronavirus world, and that is to become a regional hege hegemon. Uh, almost everything that it's seeking to do is based on reinforcing its geostrategic position, um, and the only way to do so is by under undermining uh, the existing uh, kind of, uh, let's say, uh, system that stabilizes the region. So it wants to make sure that the United States is gone out of the region. It wants to make sure that Europe isn't investing in other parts of the region. Um, and so it's it's really prioritized strong U.S. European interests in the region to try to make them indigestible or their protection indigestible to Europe and the United States, inviting them to leave then the region, at which point Iran would uh, further exploit it. Um, I don't want to go into great detail about that now. I want to give space a little bit to Michael. If he's uh, here, right, because I have an additional question related to what you've just oh, said. Sure, sure. Yes. Uh, mm, Michael, can you hear us? Actually, I think he's uh, he's he's out once again. Uh, well, what interests me particularly is how do you see uh, the the relation uh, between Iran and United States on the one side, and obviously there is a cleavage now uh, in terms of the relation between Iran and Europe on the other side, as we saw that uh, European the key European member states. Um, uh, even after Brexit negotiations, UK still joined the common position, uh, which is that they still want to back the GCPOA, the Iran deal from, you know, from from the perspective of the European geoeconomic interests. Is this something that really plays out um, in terms of uh, in terms of long-term engagement? Uh, and do you see that there will be a cleavage between the partners of the transatlantic community when it comes to, you know, dealing with I'm here. Yes, hello, Michael. Hi. 
Hi, we were just discussing Hi. we were just discussing Iran, so you actually didn't miss a lot uh, except uh, for uh, for Mitchell's uh, you know input. Uh, we were just um, dealing with the question of the relations between the United States and Iran on the one side mm -hmm. and uh, Europe and Iran on the other side uh, yes. and how this um, cleavage in the transatlantic uh, community if you like when it comes to uh, the future of uh, you know of engagement when it comes to the dealing with iran um is going to play out so what is your take on that oh okay well first of all hello to everyone hello mitch i heard part of mitch's comments um and let me wish each of you and your families and everyone listening uh, that everyone should be safe and healthy at this time. And thank you for joining. Um, I would like to remind everyone in terms of when thinking about Iran and COVID-19 is that before the COVID-19 crisis, there were massive protests on the streets in two waves. Um, if you remember, there were the, after the wave of protests in Iraq, and Lebanon, there was the wave of protests that took everyone aback uh, in Iran itself. Um, and uh, it was widespread. It was not just in Tehran. It was in the hardest hit economic areas. And it was not just, uh, it was common people. It was not uh, the elite. And it was the economy, economic problems were directed at the regime. Uh, uh, protesters were burning pictures of uh, Khamenei. Um, and then there was the Soleimani uh, assassination. Soleimani was assassinated, and then we saw these big funerals, and there was a debate if this helped the regime or not. But then there was a second wave of protests after the Iranian fiasco with the downed uh, airplane uh, and the Iranian cover-up. Uh, and the use of the airplane as like a human shield. And that led to a second wave. And that wave of protests uh, really ended because of COVID-19. So when we think about uh, what the post-COVID-19 uh, Iran picture will look like, we have to remember that discontent didn't go away. Uh, because of COVID-19, it's estimated that one to two million Iranians have lost their jobs, and uh, whereas the uh, the the projections for Iran's economy to contract were nine percent, now they're at fifteen percent contraction of the economy. Uh, so all of this um, is going is going to be blamed on the regime, and Iran is in a very volatile situation because. Uh, the reform movement has no credibility. So, uh, and Iran is facing elections coming up. So all of these factors will affect uh, the Iranian regime. And then, um, you know, just to balance its budget, Iran needs an oil price of $390. So even if uh, China buys Iranian oil, uh, the price that, the Iran that they will buy it, it's very low. So what we're looking at is a, is a regime that uh, has very limited resources. It's overstretched in its uh, activities in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Uh, and we should be, uh, IRGC takes about 25% of Iran's um, economy or controls about it. So I, I think Iran will face very important questions uh, about how much it decides to uh, continue its foreign operations and how much it decides to uh, put in the domestic economy for regime security. So I would just, I wanted to lay out those. I, I didn't hear them yet. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, the thing uh, is uh, that I still would like to stress uh, the importance of, uh, of the post-COVID uh, 19 scenario. So I really well, that, that's would a, like to hear from point. you and from yes, yes and from Mitchell also why uh, well in which kind of direction do you see that the relations the bilateral relations will be going? Will we 
be facing a kind of a normalization uh, in uh, the U.S.-Iran relations because everyone is coping with uh, severe economic uh, situation uh, due to the virus outbreak. So it applies to every country, big or small, weak or strong. So I think that there will be probably some kind of an interest on both sides to at least postpone, let's put it that way, to postpone the, 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 the tensions and try to somehow come up with, uh, you know, with a uh, uh, normalization phase. We have uh, presidential elections in the United States and uh, Michael yeah. also mentioned elections in Iran. So, yeah. Mitch, what is your take? Well, so just, just to kind of build a little bit on what actually the, the indication of what you've been noting as well as the future of the JCPOA in this regard. Um, first, I want to also kind of build a little bit on what Michael was saying about in, in relation to the regime having to face some serious challenges going forward. Of course it will. Um, but the question is, what is its track record on dealing with crisis internally and externally? It's to ramp up this kind of uh, rhetoric, this we're alone rhetoric, and the rhetoric is usually followed by very aggressive policies, which is why in the last three, four weeks, you've seen a very aggressive kind of uh, behavior of, of both Iran uh, directly in the Straits of Hormuz again, um, yes. trying to capture an American vessel, uh, playing uh, cat and mouse again with American ships uh, in, in the Strait of Hormuz. At the same time, you're seeing a ramping up of activity in Yemen. Uh, you're seeing, uh, again, I, I mean, there's there's mixed messages here. Uh, there's been messages from the, the regime in Tehran uh, throughout this crisis uh, about to what extent, I mean, the, the main narrative that bounces around the official channels in Iran is that COVID is actually an American disease that's spreading through Iran. Um, so I don't see that this is going to be a platform of trust building uh, or dialoguing afterwards. I think what the regime is trying to do is hunker down. Um, they're going to narrative that they're defending the Iranian revolution and the Iranian people from these external forces like the United States. Um, but what's more interesting, and uh, I'll, I'll turn back to, to you, Valina, after this statement, but I think what's more interesting is the reaction to Iran's behavior in Europe, because I think that slowly, slowly, uh, European states are coming to realize with greater certainty what kind of regime you're facing in Iran. And this week's, this week's uh, banning of Hezbollah in Germany right. uh, is a very good indication. It's not just symbolism. This is... This is a, a black eye to Iran, which uh, has kind of, uh, well, not kind of, has c tremendously benefited from the Hezbollah presence in Germany over the last decades. Um, and now that presence is gone, um, or at least uh, gone underground. And this, I think, sends a very strong signal from Germany to Iran directly that your support for clandestine operations and groups in Europe will no longer be tolerated. I can see that this will have a cascading effect as well. Other countries around Europe are likely to follow suit. Mm -hmm. well, I'd you. like to yes. amplify uh, and build on Mitch's points and answer your question, Valina. Uh, I was going to bring up the uh, example of Hezbollah in Germany as well. And it, it's quite significant when you think that um, Iran relies a tremendous amount on uh, illicit trade to keep its economy afloat. So there's a lot of... Uh, implications. But to answer your question, I don't think you can look at Iran uh, in, in, in European relations and Iran-U.S. relations in isolation from what happens in the rest of the region. I think what you have is a, a Iran that's been weakened by COVID-19, but Iran is, is used to austerity. But um, I would argue that uh, the COVID-19 has actually uh, benefited Saudi Arabia and and would put Saudi Arabia in a stronger position in the Middle East. And similarly, uh, as long as the United States uh, continues to provide its financial bailout for Turkey, uh, Turkey is in a very strong position. Uh, so I agree with Mitch that Iran will, uh, uh, in the short term, very much uh, try to pursue uh, its 
its hand in the Middle East. In addition to Yemen, I would also point to Iran's uh, activities on the islands between the United Arab Emirates and Iran that the United Arab Emirates claims. But Iran has announced that it's going to uh, build housing on these disputed islands. So I think what Iran will do is press for weak points, especially um, in the, as I said, Saudi, there are three, there are three regional alignments, Iran and its allies, uh, the Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt block, and then the third alignment, the Turkey Qatar block. And as a result of these uh, of COVID-19, I would argue with uh, that the um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates bloc, particularly because of Saudi Arabia, uh, is in a stronger position than it was before. And, and also the uh, Turkey-Qatar relationship with the proviso that it depends on uh, relations between Ankara and Washington. Um, so, uh, this, uh, puts Iran more in a box. Um, it could potentially push Iran, uh, to be more accommodating with Russia, for example, in, in Syria, because, um, Iran is, um, is in a, in a worse situation, um, and it will need to compromise somehow, uh, I think in terms of uh, Mitch is correct, the European attitudes, but uh, as we know, uh, Europe itself uh, is facing uh, such a difficult um, economic situation where you have uh, the Southern European countries uh, contracting and even Germany contracting 5% that it's not clear to me how much uh, the, the Europe can do now to change the situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. Uh, that makes me move to the second uh, questions block, which is related uh, to the Gulf countries. Um, as we witnessed, uh, the, the countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council also faced a dual shock, right? So on the one side, uh, dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but on the other side, uh, they were very, very strongly hit by the collapse of the oil prices. Um, and uh, also, of course, we know that the region is very interconnected to China. So it is a kind of a, a cascading effect that uh, had on uh, this particular region uh, because uh, China was uh, some, in, a, in, a, in a way also, um, you know, dealing with its own internal issues. And that's the expectation also for for uh, the next uh, at least several months, right? Half of year. So uh, no demand uh, shock in the, on the supply side, shock on the demand side. So this kind of uh, um, coupled problems are, you know, being accelerated specifically for this region. And I would like to know um, what is your take um, on, um, you know, modes of, coordination, if there are any between the Gulf countries during the COVID-19 and uh, your expectations, whether there will be more cooperation, more coordination, or rather, once again, a kind of a escalation phase, maybe. Uh, within the Gulf countries, we know uh, that uh, there is uh, still this, uh, you know, a block of tensions between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So how do you see this? And of course, what interests me particularly is what kind of implications this might have on uh, Europe once again, because for Europe, uh, this is uh, the very, very geostrategic region uh, linking the southern and eastern neighborhood. So everything that happens there mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, is, has a direct uh, impact also on, uh, on Europe. So, Mitch? Sure. So I think I'll, I'll leave the energy side of this to Mikhail. Uh, who's yeah. uh, much more of a specialist in uh, energy than I am. Uh, but I do want to, maybe as an energy point, I, I, I do want to stress that I'm not convinced that the oil 
crisis is so much of a crisis in the Gulf. Uh, I think it's just a blip. Uh, and uh, the, that's not only Saudi Arabia, but the GCC countries in general will come back stronger from this in just a few months from now. Uh, but I do want to focus on the COVID crisis as it, as it impacts the Gulf countries. Um, because it's been a very interesting, if you're, if you're um, taking a bird's eye view, you'll see some very interesting uh, changes and developments in the countries. Uh, first and foremost, healthcare has been so quickly and, you know, healthcare services have been so quickly mobilized that they turned COVID very early on into a national not only security, but a national identity forming issue. All the Gulf countries, and if you look, just look at the number of infections versus the number of uh, casualties because of the COVID in the Gulf countries, they've been so fast to react. They've opened their healthcare systems for not only citizens, but anybody who lives there. Sorry, mm -hmm. there's a background. Um, anybody who lives there, um, they, they really sprung into action. If you see the videos, if you see how they've set up their hospitals, how they've purchased the rest, basically they've looked at this as, as, a, as a national security and identity forming issue. Um, so places like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, UAE, they, they, they've always maintained anyways, uh, very good coordination between them, be it in energy, be it in security, but now it extends to healthcare. And I think that there'll be some very valuable lessons. I think that uh, the early warning systems um, across the world failed um, and we're playing catch up. Some places have been able to play catch up faster than others, but you see that they're willing to incur um, even economic, uh, economic stagnation or uh, a downslide in order to their citizens for the kind of uh, uh, health care that's needed to walk them through this crisis. I, I deeply suspect as well that in the crisis, you're going to have a, I don't know, a kind of new born of advanced research and developments uh, in terms of dealing not only with pandemics, but medical research in general. And I think you're going to see the kind of innovation um, hub that's been slowly building up in and around the region is going to just skyrocket when it comes to medical research. Now, this is very interesting because for decades and, and for the century, the last century, Europe was the heart of this. But Europe struggled much more because of the neoliberal policies in relation to healthcare um, and essentially the, the two track system. Whereas in the Gulf, you really have, you know, government organized healthcare system. So I think that this will be the biggest uh, change that you'll see afterwards, this new innovation hub in medical uh, research and development. I'm, I also wouldn't want to overstate their relationship to China in that front. I think for the most part, if sides have to be drawn, the GCC countries will always go back to their main um, alliance framework, which is the European countries and the United States. And as the economic and political lines are being drawn in the sands, uh, the Gulf countries are gravitating, I think, more into uh, or re-gravitating back to Washington. Um, the, chi the Chinese model is not something that they necessarily want to follow. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mitch. Okay. Michael. Thank you, Mitch. It's very interesting comments, Mitch. Uh, building on one point that, that Mitch said, you know, um, the Gulf countries are transforming from uh, uh, regimes based on families to try to develop a national identity. We see this most prominently in Saudi Arabia with uh, MBS and young people. And so what Mitch has pointed to uh, will really help that project. Um, I'd say Saudi Arabia is comes out more powerful um, because if you look at uh, foreign reserves in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is by far the leader. It's got 510 billion, according to the IMF. To give you a sense of who's next, Israel comes at 115 billion and the UAE at 100 billion. Saudi Arabia 
And that's not to include all the foreign assets that Saudi Arabia could liquidate. So uh, they were able to uh, weather this so-called oil Mageddon very well uh, compared to all the others. And what that means is um, the other economies cannot easily start up the volatile economies, Iraq, which we haven't talked about, which to me, because of the oil and the COVID-19, is going to be one of the trouble points. Iran, you can throw in countries uh, like Algeria, all these vulnerable economies that are oil producers, they will not be able to invest in restarting their oil or maintaining their oil. And just to give you a sense, even if there is no growth in oil demand, the world needs to replace 6 million barrels per day per year just to keep, uh, to compensate for declining fields. So all of that means uh, there's going to be a boomerang effect in demand because consumer demand will pick up way ahead of how much these other producers will be able to start. And the country best poised to fill in that gap is Saudi Arabia. Second, uh, Saudi Arabia is the only country that has significant spare capacity that, and is willing to hold it at a cost, which means Saudi Arabia is the only country that can add or subtract supply at will. Uh, no other country can do that. So the COVID-19 and then the oil really confirmed Saudi Arabia's role as the central banker of oil. In fact, which was kind of on the skids since 2015 because of shale. So what you have though is Saudi Arabia's central position is confirmed despite the Khashoggi murder and, and the bad uh, press, you know, uh, Saudi, the Washington turned, Washington and the European capitals turned to Saudi Arabia. No other country was able to do it. So uh, Saudi Arabia came through. So uh, there is in a, in a certain way, uh, a certain kind of goodwill there at realizing that Saudi Arabia is necessary. Furthermore, Russia learned a very important lesson. Russia learned it can't go out on a, by itself. It can't go it alone. Uh, it started that price war uh, and Saudi Arabia emerged um, uh, triumphant. So in that sense, Russia uh, will, might have to do more geopolitical bargaining with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and so in that sense, you could argue that uh, where the Gulf countries, uh, their position vis-a-vis -vis Russia is now much stronger. And of course, there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the issue of the succession crisis, Russian economy hard hit by COVID. So this puts Saudi Arabia in, in a very, in a, in a very good position. Qatar also is in a good position because Qatar, its break-even point for the oil price um, is only $40 per barrel. Uh, and also the GCC and kind of did uh, Qatar a favor because Qatar learned to survive in isolation. They learned to uh, uh, live without the Gulf countries. So they also will come out uh, uh, relatively okay. Uh, and that um, also has implications for their activities uh, with Turkey, uh, their relations uh, around the Middle East. Um, and in terms of Europe and the Gulf, uh, what you see is uh, France is the most important player with its naval base in, um, in the UAE and leading this uh, maritime protection force. So when we look at... Um, the Gulf countries and their view of, of Europe, it will really come to what kind of leadership France will exercise uh, in the Gulf and then in other parts of the Middle East and how much the rest of the European Union will follow along with the French lead. And mm -hmm. I'll stop there and... Uh... Can I just um, add something, Valina? Yeah, sure. So I, I just wanted to... Um on Michael's point, because he raised some very, again, very interesting, very important points. Um, but I, I want to come back a little bit to Qatar, because even if financially they can make it through this, um, they, they will never be able to survive in any kind of isolation. And after, after the GCC crisis erupted, I think 
a lot of a lot of people around the the, the rest of the GCC, uh, UAE, Bahrain, Saudi, even Kuwait and Oman, had expected some kind of concession to be made by Qatar. When that wasn't forthcoming, you got kind of like a, a, a kind of splits between those who say, you know, you have to start negotiating with us or, you know, there's no integration, uh, reintegration um, or or those like Kuwait and uh, Oman that were willing to play a kind of neutral role uh, in the crisis. But what Qatar did, and here's where I think that uh, and where I disagree with uh, Michael a little bit, they're going to come out in a more difficult position precisely because of who, which company they, they keep now. You hmm. cannot separate Qatar's geopolitical relationship with Turkey and Iran from the way that others are viewing, for example, Iran and Turkey. And so right now it seems that the United States-Turkey relationship is back on track. Um, they've, they've, they really have kind of reconciled the, you know, the crises of last year. Um, but still, there's, there's a, lot, um, a lot of things in, in the uh, unfolding. We don't, we don't know where this is going to take us quite yet. Um, but when it comes to Iran, I, I don't think that Qatar is going to be able to reconcile its relationship to Iran and its relationship to the United States. At some point, it's going to have to choose. And I think also patience in Washington is going to be wearing more and more thin with a Qatar that is not willing to negotiate with its Arab uh, GCC uh, partners, um, you know, traditional friends, traditional allies, uh, but rather would, would work closer with uh, Iran. And I think this is, this is a very big problem in, in Washington. I think that people like uh, Mike Pompeo will remember um, the emirs, the, the travel to Iran uh, following the assassination of, uh, of uh, Soleimani, the, the, the Qatar uh, black flag, the, the uh, condolences that were sent. And they'll be asking questions about the reliability of their Qatar ally. Uh, I, I, I agree with Mitch. Mitch, I don't think we um, uh, disagree on the framing of this, but I would say that uh, a point that I raised and that you reiterated, uh, the Turkey-U.S. relationship will be important uh, for the Qatar-U.S. relationship. Um, that uh, all the, the problems you cited vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Iran and the, and the U.S. for Qatar uh, could be mitigated if the U.S. and Turkey um, have a greater alignment in various places like um, uh, Syria, Libya, and the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, this could create um, an avenue, at least for Qatar, to um, have a different relationship with Washington. It doesn't solve the problem with the Gulf countries. Uh, but again, this is the big question mark of, of what will happen with um, the U.S. and Turkey, and then, of course, that, that relates to Turkey and Syria and Turkey in uh, Libya. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, which brings me to the next question, and that's the $1 million uh, question of uh, either or choices. Uh, this region is not the only one, and it, I mean, this region is not excluded from this uh, dilemma that is uh, the dilemma of the systemic rivalry between the United States and China. How do you think that uh, this uh, uh, systemic rivalry will uh, impact the region? Um, Mitch mentioned um, either or choices. Michael also pointed to balancing acts uh, by several countries in the region. So we obviously see that, uh, you know, uh, the key players in the region are still the known ones. Um, you know, next to the United States, we have uh, a more assertive uh, role uh, by Russia, but we are also increasingly witness a kind of a dragon bear, uh, dragon bear mode uh, in the Middle East um, that is uh, increasing presence by China also as a trade partner, still only as a trade partner and as a, you know, future infrastructure or connectivity or call it like you want uh, you know 
a business uh, partner but uh, what interests me is um, to to give me your view on on your future scenario in the mid to long I mean mid to long term um, do you expect an increasing role by the dragon bear in this region uh, will this uh, somehow lead to a kind of polarization in the region uh, in Europe we've obviously witnessed uh, an increasing increasingly uh, actions uh, and uh, measures by China and Russia you know to capitalize on the COVID-19 crisis uh, it was a broad range of uh, you know spectrum of, uh, of uh, different kind of measures do you expect this kind of uh, or similar kind of uh, um, yeah, approach towards the Middle East and uh, North Africa. And uh, yes, and speaking of balancing acts, at some point all of these regional actors will have to make a choice, right? Uh, with which of uh, these kind of big systemic uh, rivals they will go. Uh, so what is your expectation on this? I, I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's uh, try to uh, outline some kind of scenarios for the region. And uh, lastly, what is the role of uh, the European institutions? I mean, some European key members were mentioned, uh, such as France, UK, but uh, do you see actually a geopolitical commission being present in the Gulf region? I mean, uh, we know that uh, the Gulf countries have a strong interest of, uh, in, in negotiating a trade deal with uh, the European Commission. Uh, that means uh, there is a strong interest in access to the common market. Can this be used as a kind of a geoeconomic um, uh, incentive, if you like, to, for, the European, for the European countries also to step in? Because obviously they are absent from the equation at the moment. Feel free to jump in, in <laughs> to this. So, Mitch, do you want to go first? You've been going first sure. every time. I'll, Would you like to go? I'll be, first? I'll be a bit, I'll be a bit uh, quick, anyways, because I mean, I want to just first and foremost address the um, how, how we say the elephant in the room, which is the EU. No, we can't call it the elephant in the room. The mouse in the room, which is the <laughs> geopolitical commission. Um, when, when it was first articulated that the European Commission would be a geopolitical focused commission, I, I laughed out loud, actually, because they don't have the assets or the willpower. Um, so it's just, it's just um, a rhetorical ploy to try to give the EU a larger global role to play. But if you don't build the assets and you lack the will, what are the expectations really? And so in this, I think the EU is missing a huge opportunity because of that introverted Europeanism. Um, and rather than you know, trying to find or participate in a real changing world, um, Europe rather expects the world to reflect um, an introverted Europe, which is, which is also a little absurd. Um, so we can, we can put Europe on pause for now as the institutions are really more than more than almost any other region they're really wrapped up with covid and trying to figure out how solidarity works in a crisis like this and this is a really easy crisis bombs are not falling mm -hmm. on our head while we have to maintain you know uh, social distance this is a pretty easy crisis to sort out and you would have expected much more solidarity amongst the member states than what we got and this is opening up a, a Pandora's box of other problems that Europe is going to have to address before it starts looking for a way to engage in the world. Um, so for, for the time being, I would take it off of this worldwide geostrategic question. Um, and, you know, let's let, let it fold into NATO seems to be much more adept at global uh, affairs. Now, most EU members belong to NATO, uh, belong to NATO so it's really not posing a, a huge problem, but not all members do. And so, you know, it's a fine line balancing between the European Union interests and the European members of NATO's interests. Uh, but again, the, it's not so pressing at this time. I would rather focus just for a few moments on 
the Gulf countries and in terms of the wider systemic challenges and pressures, because the Gulf countries, whether we like to look at it in this way or not, the reality is that all the Gulf countries are forming a kind of new civilization, an Arab Gulf mm -hmm. civilization. That mm -hmm. civilization has its own kind of institutions, communication, they're, they're pushing themselves into a different place than they came from even 15, 20, 30 years ago. So long gone is the idea of pan-Arabism, long gone is the pan-Islamism. We have a regionalism within the Arab, in the Arab world, in the Middle East, and the spearhead is the Arab Gulf countries. Now, speaking of which, there's a process going on because of the COVID-19 of a deglobalization of certain sectors. And this deglobalization, for example, in the healthcare sector, is going to have immense repercussions around the world, in Europe, in the United States, and even in, particularly in the Gulf. Because the Gulf countries, like others, have learned that you cannot outsource your security, for example, in healthcare. Um, and, you know, in Europe, this, this should have been obvious, but it's not been. More than 80% of our pills come from either India or China. Uh, that means two actors can essentially starve us of our, you know, medical equipment if necessary. Um, and this is something that we have to, you know, come to terms with. We have to decouple our healthcare sector from the globalized world. And that means we're going to have to reproduce or reintroduce local or national level or even European level um, uh, pharmaceuticals production sites. This is going to be costly. This is going to take a long time, but it has to be done. In the Gulf, they, didn't, they, they don't have to um, uh, worry so much about the public expenditure uh, to do so because you have both the, the will, you have the finance, and now you're getting the research and development needed to, to make those kind of contributions. I was not surprised to learn that the UAE is one of the leaders in finding a medical solution to COVID-19. They have the young people, they have the innovation, and what they lack, they can just buy from, for example, Europe, because they're able to invest much more in these kind of sectors than European states are. Um, and so I think that China lost a lot of trust with all of its partners around the world uh, because of its failure to disclose the, the true nature of this of this disease or the human human contact points they didn't pass on adequate information in a timely way to the who uh, and their disinformation campaigns have been focused not on the united states and europe but on global affairs and i think that there will be a big pushback against china be it uh, in the united states europe in the gulf in the middle east in general because the level of trust has gone very very low uh, as a result of its actions and inactions and disinformation. So I think um, when it comes to systemic change, we're going to see the flowering of new regional centers. And I think foremost among those will be the Gulf countries. Thank you, Mitch. Uh, Michael. I, I would I would agree with uh, every point that Mitch uh, mentioned. I also think that what Mitch is talking about will also affect the uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace process uh, with the Gulf countries. But I would, if you're speaking about Europe, you need to look at North Africa. Uh, the post-COVID-19 crisis, uh, what you're having is a Europe that is more insular that will actually aggravate the crisis because as the um, the European economies contract, the economic spillover will into North Africa will help uh, destabilize the whole region. Because if you look, Italy contracting 9%, Spain 8%, France 7%. Uh, these are the major countries that um, uh, that are the export markets for North Africa. So you already have a civil war uh, in Libya. You have a lot of instability. Uh, Egypt is going to have to be bailed out by the IMF. Turkey is looking relatively good, and Turkey is, has turned around the um, uh, civil war in Libya. And um, 
what you have is Turkey, uh, very strong in the Eastern Mediterranean. These, before the COVID-19, these uh, were on the verge of erupting in an interlinked manner. Uh, that structure hasn't gone away. Um, and I imagine it is going to be, uh, these areas are going to be more vulnerable. Uh, Europe will be more vulnerable to the uh, um, immigration, migration weapon from Turkey uh, in this situation. Uh, and don't forget, uh, what we just saw was the Greek land border. Now that the weather is warmer, uh, sea travel is, is possible. Uh, and so um, we also um, is, will see just generally countries like Tunisia will have to ask for an IMF bailout. Algeria is, is, is in terrible shape. So, uh, but this also creates tremendous opportunity for Turkey, which already had its uh, eyes on North Africa. So in terms of Europe, again, it comes down to France. France is the major player. France is in an antagonistic relationship. It's allied with uh, Egypt. This brings in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and so uh, these countries, uh, a lot for Europe will depend what France does, how much Italy gets behind France, and how much they coordinate with uh, Cyprus and Greece. So uh, and we could see a very important split between the Northern European countries and the Southern European countries. Uh, beyond that, uh, there is an opportunity here for Russia and China. China has extensive uh, presence in Africa and in the Horn of Africa, which is a strategic uh, area. But again, uh, for the points that Mitch is raising and also uh, for the hit that China takes, um, this is really a, a tremendous opportunity. If Europe were not um, so inward looking, uh, it would actually have a tremendous opportunity. Uh, again, it's an opportunity for Russia. But if Russia cannot, um, does not have the capability, uh, a country like Turkey could potentially, or Turkey working in with the United States, fill in the gap. This is where we could see a new confluence of interest between Washington and Ankara. Would, uh, would Washington prefer Moscow in Libya or would they prefer Ankara in Libya? These are, it, it, obviously it depends on the terms. Uh, so what I see in the Mediterranean and North Africa is a tremendous amount of, of political flux. And it, a lot will depend on Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, France and the United States uh, and, and Russia. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Mitch, uh, do you want to add something? Or, or if, uh, if uh, not, no. uh, I would do a wrap up. Yeah, I think, I think go ahead. I think I, uh, I mm -hmm. made my final statements before. Yeah. So, uh, well, we actually managed uh, in less than 60 minutes to uh, give the big picture of a very volatile and very complex region, but also to present uh, the main regional constellations and then again also to reflect uh, the current geopolitical and geoeconomic issues that will prevail following the COVID-19 crisis. And I hope that our watchers and uh, listeners also got an idea of and uh, hopefully also got curious about uh, the topic of our upcoming book uh, on the dragon bear together with uh, Mitchell Belfer, Michael Tanhum and other colleagues. We are currently uh, writing uh, a book on uh, these issues and more than that. That means that uh, by the end of the year, we are going to uh, publish um, a book that will very much reflect on exactly these issues. And if you don't have additional uh, points that you would like to add to the conversation, I mean, I'm leaving it, uh, we have like five more minutes because we started a little bit later. Please feel free to share your final, final um, inputs, uh, but really in a very short manner. Well, I just actually, if I could, I just wanted to thank you, Valina 
uh, for putting this together and to thank your staff at the Austrian Institute for European Security Policy uh, for, for going through the technical things. I know that now the, you know, everybody's gone, we've all hibernated uh, in our physical form and we've migrated into cyberspace and it's not easy to try to do these things. So um, I appreciate so much the efforts that you and your team are doing to keep our debates alive and our discussion alive. Uh, and for those who don't know, we, our institutions are partnered together uh, so I do, on behalf of all of us in the EGIC, uh, we say hello to you and um, we really are so grateful for our collaboration and look forward to more of these kind of events and other events and activities. And also, uh, to be honest, your uh, moderation is always spot on, perfect. So thank you so much <laughs> for all of your, uh, your support. Thank you, Mitch. This was a very nice, uh, nicely nicely put way of saying that I'm usually asking the inconvenient questions, but I think that uh, this is the way how we actually can. <laughs> no, I, I meant I it just like this. Not... <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to deepening our cooperation between the institutes, of course, and also on a personal level. Like I said, it's a great collaboration that we are having right now. Um, which will uh, hopefully result with a very, very interesting and timely product because we see by the day, we are seeing by the day how important uh, these uh, systemic issues are and how we actually need a comprehensive understanding of, uh, you know, of uh, the bigger picture of the bird's eye view, if you like, on, on these matters. And I'm giving the floor to Michael for his final words. Uh, well, I would just like to echo what Mitch has to say. We can speak on and on about this. Uh, there, there's so many different aspects to cover, but I would just encourage everyone who's tuned in and listened to um, follow both AIES. Valina, you've been doing amazing things uh, with these um, uh, these sessions and the same uh, Mitch's organization, EGIC, has been uh, running wonderful and informative metaphors. Um, and then I would like to thank Mitch for being such a wonderful partner in this session. And then especially you, Valina, for running everything with such um, uh, intelligence and uh, tact. You're a wonderful host, a wonderful questioner uh, with your uh, pulse on uh, the geopolitical trends over the horizon. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm really pleased uh, to have you as a senior associate uh, with the uh, Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. Uh, you are also a very good partner uh, to uh, Mitch Institute, so it's a kind of a very, very good collaboration between the three of us. And like I said, we have other colleagues. Um, last uh, week, I had Harold Malmgren and Albert Marku, who are also contributing to the mm -hmm. book project. And at some point, I will also have Rachel uh, covering China. Uh, the idea of this digital talks is uh, namely to open up the space and have a kind of a different way of conversation beyond the you know the usual institutionalized one where we can really freely discuss um, matters of uh, uncertainty because we are living in the age of greatest uncertainty of course this complicates the situation it adds a lot of more actually a lot more complexity to the issue but it also offers tremendous opportunities for countries, for institutions, and for citizens. And we can add our modest contribution to not only to the debate, but also to the future of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the relations of these countries and also to the future of, uh, you know, of uh, the understanding of how we should actually approach and understand these issues. And I'm really thankful to both of you for finding the time to be with me uh, in the last 60 minutes. Um, please stay safe and sound. I'm really glad that Italy is finally, finally uh, doing a little bit better and is even opening up. And I wish, I wish of course, uh, Michael also um, a, 
a lot of success in his endeavors. He's uh, busy with various projects uh, right now and uh, is contributing to uh, several institutions. And I'm looking forward to our hopefully rather soon, rather soon than uh, than late conversation on those issues. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank Ciao. You. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.